0: Hello friends, Stephen here. We've been doing tent Theology now for over a year and it has been a wonderful ride. We plan to keep going with this, so don't you worry. But I did think it would be good to take the time to mention something I've never really talked about on the podcast before. And that is our Patreon account. If you go to www.patreon.com forward slash Theology, you will see three different levels that you can give at. Every level gets the same goodies, which is extra material, courses, teaching, and other interviews. We try and put something up every week so that you get the Tent Theology podcast as well as the Patreon bonus episodes. Tent Theology is a labor of love, it costs some money to make, not only our time, but also to host the podcast on the various websites and platforms. By giving to Tenth Theology, you allow us to keep making this thing. We are so thankful for the patrons that we already have. And if you are someone who has benefited from Tenth Theology or something that we've made in the past, do consider becoming a patron for as little as $5 or £5 a month we're poised to be releasing our study of the Book of Acts on the Patreon account. Here on the podcast, we're going to release the first four episodes looking at the beginning of the Book of Acts. But then over on the Patreon account, you will get a line-by-line political theology reading all the way through to the end of the book. If you've been thinking about supporting Tent Theology, this is the best time to jump on board. Thank you for your support. Now on with the show. Welcome fellow traveler, you are now listening to the Tent Theology Podcast. Each week we have a tent talk where we pursue the renewing of the Christian social and political imagination. Welcome to the Bible study at the beginning of the world, the book of Acts. And For the last 20 years or so, I have been a theologian in some way or another. I am primarily a political theologian. Which means that I'm concerned with looking at the way that Christians use their power, how they give it away, how they gather it, what they think they're doing with it. I'm interested in the way Christians relate to their states and their nations and their government. I care about how being a good citizen and loving your neighbour relate to each other. I care about what happens when your neighbour is your enemy and how Christians should relate to their enemies, and how we work that out. I care about how Christians vote every four or five years. I care about whether they should vote every four or five years. And I care about the history of how Christians have organized themselves in different ways, and how they create institutions, and social structures, and other forms and habits of life. So when I say I'm a political theologian, I'm not actually talking about some obscure and separate aspect of Christian life. I talk about things that are actually at the heart of the gospel. I look at the way that Christians imagine or think about themselves as being organized around King Jesus and the kingdom of heaven. I look at things like the way Jews and Gentiles are being told to get together, to dismantle their previous forms and habits of life, their previous politics, and to create a new nation, a new people, a royal priesthood. I look at all these things, and I'm interested in nationalism and patriotism, and I write books on this stuff. I have also written books on the work of Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher and rabble-rouser, who was, for very Christ-centered reasons, very critical of Christendom, or Christian culture, Christianized culture. I take all this work that I've been doing and that I've written and I've advised different political parties and people working in public life, I take all this work and I use it as a lens to look at the New Testament. And in a previous series on the Gospel of Mark, I did a study of the political theology of Mark, moving through that Gospel line by line, chapter by chapter, considering especially the ways that... King Jesus is portrayed and what Christians of the first century thought they were doing when they organised themselves around him and his movement. And again, I find that the politics is actually front and centre to the Gospel of Mark and indeed to all the Gospels. If by politics we realise that what the earliest Christians were doing was not starting a new religion but starting a new movement, a new kingdom. And this is what they thought they were doing. And this is the sort of thing I'm trying to awaken in my listeners and readers today. And I often will use the phrase that we are trying to renew our Christian imagination. And by imagination, I don't mean made up fairy tales. I mean, when you look at the world, what do you think is going on? How do you imagine it is working? What is your structure and system and mechanism when, you, when new data and new information shows up? How do you organize it? How do you place it? What story are you telling yourself about yourself? What story is the Christian movement telling itself about itself? How is it imagining the world? How is it imagining its role and place in this world? So this is what I mean by... A Christian imagination and I also think that Christians need a new political imagination. I think that their vision of what's going on in the world and what their place is in the world has been largely and demonstrably influenced by an imagination that draws almost nothing from the New Testament and the way of Jesus and almost everything from patriotism, nationalism Pragmatism and common sense forms of life, which basically boil down to I'm going to protect what's rightfully mine and what is for people who look like me and sound like me as much as possible. This is the logic of the nation. This is the logic of tribalism and patriotism that resources are scarce and they must be defended. And used only for people who look like me and sound like me as much as possible. And I think that this logic of modern day politics has corrupted and influenced the Christian imagination to such an extent that many of the people who are most loud and sentimental in their language of Jesus are the least influenced by the way of Jesus. And I'm not going to go into that in this study, but what I hope to do is demonstrate or shine a light on the earliest Christian imagination, the people who knew Jesus, or the people who knew the people who knew Jesus, and what it was they thought they were doing in this world, and what was shaping their forms of life and their actions towards their friends, their enemies, and each other. The book of Acts is a really good resource for this. It's a repository of basically the earliest Christian view of themselves. We have record of their sermons and their teaching. We have a sense of what they thought the other nations were doing and what they thought they were doing when they were a new nation. And we have a great sense here in the book of Acts of the people who are forming themselves around King Jesus and their movement. In the earliest, short, sharp shock of encountering the Incarnation, what did it feel like to be in this time and place? That's why we're going to look at the Book of Acts. But before I start on Acts, quick word on the title, The Bible Study at the Beginning of the World. As a point of reference, I'm currently doing this recording during coronavirus lockdown and I suspect that many of my listeners are also living in lockdown. And right now, a lot of people are talking about this as the end of the world. There's a lot of apocalyptic language going on. And apocalypse doesn't mean the end of the world. For the earliest Christians, apocalypse was a really useful genre and style of thinking, which signified the end of an era and the beginning of a new one. All apocalypses are always the end of one age, and the beginning of another, which is why Jesus and all the New Testament figures, spoke about the end of their world as birth pains, as a woman giving birth. For that woman, it's the end of one age, but it is also the beginning of a new one. And all apocalypses, always bring new things. In fact, it's only when the old order and old forms of life collapse and crack that the new ones can emerge. And this is what apocalyptic literature means in the New Testament. And with all its announcement of the end of the old order and the beginning of the new way, the Book of Acts is a highly apocalyptic book, very much worthy of inclusion in our Bible study at the beginning of the world. One thing we need to do when we look at the book of Acts is consider the fact that it is in fact the second part of the Gospel of Luke. And this often gets missed out in our imaginations. Our Christian imaginations get influenced by the placement of the book of Acts which comes after the Gospel of John. But Luke wrote his Gospel and the Book of Acts as one unit, or the Book of Acts was intentionally meant to be a continuation of his Gospel. In this episode, I'm just going to look a little bit at Luke, and also the Gospel of Luke, and how it might relate to Acts as a whole. And then in later episodes, we're going to be specifically going through the Book of Acts, chapter by chapter. Luke is sometimes referred to as the physician. He's often also identified as the traveling companion of Paul, who comes up in the book of Acts himself. There's some we language where the author starts to put himself in those moments where he was traveling with Paul. But for the most part, Luke doesn't claim to be an eyewitness to either the events in the Gospel of Luke or to the events in the Gospel of Acts, except, as I say, for those a few occasions where he puts himself in. The point about Luke is that he in fact says he's not an eyewitness, certainly to the Gospels, and he, he begins his Gospel by saying, if you look at it, he says, that, you know, oh Theophilus, I I did my research and I went, it seemed right to me that I should should gather the other resources that were out there about the life of Jesus and put them together into one so that you might have a good grounding in the faith so he's not claiming to be an eyewitness and he is claiming to be an editor and that is worth pointing out that if one finds editing evidence of editing in the gospel of luke or in the acts that's okay in fact all the gospels are edited documents put together for a reason And the Gospel of John is no different. John tells you, he says, I could have written more. There was lots of things I could have written about Jesus and it would have filled all the books in the world. But I chose the things that I chose so that you might believe that Jesus is the son of God, for example. So the editor's hand is evident in these texts. And Luke is no different. The person that he writes to, he seems to have dedicated it to somebody named Theophilus, and Theophilus might have been an actual patron or a person in the early church but Theophilus might also be, be the reader who is a love a lover of God because that's what Theophilus means the love love of God we're not absolutely sure whether Theophilus is just a person who loves God or is an actual patron of the movement in the early church i'm not sure if it really matters because the the text was was also handed around from church to church. It was designed to be read out loud. It was designed to be an instruction manual in the earliest ways of the early church. And in Luke and Acts as a whole, God's mighty act of deliverance through Jesus is narrated as an epic that travels the whole length of Luke and Acts together. It spans human history. And it particularly puts the early church or, well, (laughs) from Luke's point of view, it wasn't the early church at all. It was the church. And what Luke-Acts does is it's placing the church within the story of God's dealings with his people, Israel. There is a connection here, a through line. The work and life of the believers in Acts is a clear sequel to the events of Jesus in the gospel of Luke. And the events of Jesus are themselves intimately connected to the workings and movement of God with the people of Israel. There's a lot of joined up writing going on here. There's a lot of dots being connected. And this is one of the things that I'm going to try and do as we go through our study. Acts 1 begins in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. After he had been given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So I just let's note this word here. Luke is here saying the events in the gospel are only the beginning of what Jesus set out to accomplish. And then in the prologue to Luke, which is also worth looking at, uh, Luke 1, 1 to 4, he says, Theophilus, I'm, I'm telling you these things so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. And the word truth here in Greek is asphalia, which means ground, certainty, firmness. It's where, not at all incidentally, we get the word asphalt for laying down the roads. It's the, the truth that Luke is talking about here is the groundwork or the solid base upon which the lovers of God or Theophilus is building his movement or as he's joined a movement. And here's the solid ground the solid road on which you're based. And so the theme here in Luke-Acts is the constancy of God's purpose. There's a deep correspondence between the Hebrew scriptures or what Christians call the Old Testament and Luke-Acts. That is probably not a single page of Luke and Acts which doesn't refer to or quote from the whole Hebrew scriptures in some way. Luke is consciously echoing The Old Testament language, he's consciously using Old Testament phrases and diction, even if he's not directly quoting it, he's evoking it. And so the genre that Luke is aiming for is one of the telling the story or the history of God's people. He's self-consciously a historian who's telling the story of the history of the people of God and he's placing Theophilus and his movement inside that story like I said, Luke is addressing the Christian imagination. He's helping to form a Christian imagination, helping to place the followers of Jesus into a story that is bigger and wider and deeper than what they themselves have invented. One of the things that luke does is he presents these stories of jesus in the gospel and then the story of the holy spirit in the book of acts as the fulfillment of god's promises to israel this is a theme that one's going to see a lot they aren't predictions so luke isn't making these predictions about the future instead the gospel of luke is a fulfillment of god's promises to god's people in the Old Testament, and then the book of Acts is a fulfillment of Jesus's promises to the disciples. I don't know if this makes sense, but so all the things that get mentioned in the book of Luke happen in the book of Acts, or there's a parallel. So for example, you look at Mary's song in Luke 1, 54 to 55, where Mary sings her song about the, the, the proud of being brought down and the humble are being lifted up according to the promise he has made to our ancestors and in the book of Luke Mary's song here is not a far distant prediction that we hope is going to happen it happens it starts to happen right away in the life of Jesus the humble are being lifted up the proud are being brought down according to the promises that God has made and so there's a real emphasis on the fulfilled promises. Jesus as a fulfillment of the promise, which is a distinctive element of Luke and Acts, by the way. And it's a it's a more of a, trying to put Luke Acts into a the genre here is not one of prophecy if you think of that as predicting the future. It's more of the prophetic in the Old Testament sense of speaking truth to power, speaking God's word into places which have been locked down and think that they've got everything sorted. You think that you're sorted. You think that you are powerful, priests and kings. But we're here to tell you that the humble are being lifted up and the proud are being brought down. And that's the message of Luke, is that Luke is telling us that Jesus is doing that right now. This has happened in the life of Jesus. And then what happens is Jesus starts to say, you're going to do greater things than me. You're going to have these things happen to you. And what happens in the Gospel of Luke then or what gets predicted in the Gospel of Luke by Jesus then gets fulfilled in the book of Acts. One of the things that we're going to notice is how often Luke very deliberately mirrors events that happen in Acts to disciples is things that happen to Jesus in the Gospel. Another interesting element that's worth bearing down on a little bit is the Christology of Luke. So in the Gospel of Luke, the role and identity of Jesus, which we call Luke's Christology, then gets applied to the disciples and the early church in in the book of Acts. And this isn't to say that the church is Jesus Christ. It's more to say that the sorts of things that Luke spends a lot of effort connecting to Jesus in his gospel, he then spends the same amount of effort connecting it to the identity and role of the believers in the book of Acts. There is a a correlation that he's making, and there's three main ones to consider here. And here I'm drawing from the work of Richard Hayes, who I've often quoted before in other podcasts. His book, The Moral Vision of the New Testament, is a highly recommended book, and I, I learn a lot from it. And I I will include my other voices that I'm drawing from uh, later on. But at the moment, Richard Hayes does point out some of this stuff, and it's worth just following his logic here. So the three main ones, three main Christological points that Luke makes is one that he talks about Jesus as the spirit-empowered servant. He talks about Jesus as the prophet who is like Moses. And he talks about Jesus as the righteous or innocent martyr. And these are three very important aspects of Jesus' identity in the Gospel of Luke, which then become connected to the believers and to the early church in the book of Acts. Let's look at the spirit empowered servant right now. In Luke, Jesus is said to return from his time in the wilderness with the power of the Spirit, he's empowered by the Spirit. And then he does that in Luke 4. Jesus comes to the hometown, and very famously, he, he opens up. He goes to the synagogue, right, and he opens up the scroll. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And then he rolls up the scroll, and he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is spirit-empowered, and the spirit is a force of creation. was the Holy Spirit that was hovering over the darkness and the uh, unformed void in the in Genesis. And so the Holy Spirit is an agent of creation. When Jesus is coming out of the wilderness, the chaotic wilderness, and the spirit of the Lord is on him, that's when in his baptism he receives the Holy Spirit. And then he's able to speak words of recreation when he's bringing good news to the poor. And the fulfillment of the scriptures marks the beginning of a new age. In Luke, Jesus takes on the mantle of the servant of God as proclaimed in Isaiah. So Luke is often referring to Isaiah, the suffering servant. It's closely tied to Jesus who is spirit-filled. So for Luke, the spirit-filled servant of God is one whose primary activity is one of liberation and justice, bringing good news to the poor, release to the captives. And here we'd be looking at uh, Isaiah 58 and 61, which are very important text for Luke, and he uses these texts, Isaiah 58 and 61, to help draw the dots between what is being promised in the Old Testament and what is being fulfilled in Jesus. So Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit, and he evokes these texts right at the beginning of his ministry. He sets out his manifesto in Luke 4, and he declares himself as the anointed one who's going to liberate Israel and restore justice to her people. A key part of the Gospel of Luke is how Jesus brings about justice and liberation to more than just the Hebrews. What happens is he expands the idea. All the Gospels do this, by the way. It's a key feature of Jesus's identity, is that he comes from a a chosen person, and he affirms the idea of being a chosen person. But at the same time, he expands this category to include people who would normally be not allowed inside that category. So the idea of being a chosen person is affirmed. It's just that the now chosen people look like Gentiles and people with poverty and illness are considered chosen people as well. The God's people in the book of Luke become the poor, which is a category that also encompassed or included people who didn't have the law. So Gentiles are very much part of the people of God and Luke has a lot of time for Gentiles and others considered outside of the ethnic heritage of being a people of God. And then this implications of this, the implications of Jesus being a servant of a Holy Spirit, servant of the Lord, who's going to bring justice and liberation to all God's people, which is more than just the narrow vision of the so-called chosen people becomes a major theme in the book of Acts. In fact, it's dominant theme in the book of Acts, is the Holy Spirit being brought to all nations. But the seeds are sown in Jesus's life and Acts is continuing the work. Now, the second theme is that Luke sees Jesus as a type of Moses. So Luke spends a lot of time relating Jesus to Moses as a, in the way that Joseph, uh, Moses was a prophetic liberator. If you think of the story of Moses, let my people go. This is the kind of mode or activity that Jesus takes in the Gospel of Luke. By the way, unlike Matthew, Matthew also likes to connect Jesus to Moses. But Matthew's emphasis is on Moses as the lawgiver and Jesus as the lawgiver. And there's the extended Sermon on the Mount and that kind of stuff. And it is worth, you know, paying attention to that fact. As an aside, (laughs) the Holy Spirit didn't see fit to give us one gospel with one voice, but four gospels with four voices. And there is benefit in paying attention to the different emphasis that the different gospel writers put. And they are doing theology. They are theologically shaping and crafting their material because they have different things they want to say about Jesus and his meaning. And that's just there. It's part of our scriptures. In Matthew, Jesus, (laughs) Jesus in Matthew his connection to Moses is often as a lawgiver and Jesus in Luke, his connection to Moses is as some sort of prophetic liberator. And when Jesus is described as the prophet like Moses, which is an important phrase, the prophet like Moses shows up in Luke. And it's always structured after stories in Deuteronomy. Um, Luke acts, I should have said. So for example, look at Peter's We'll we'll look at Peter's sermon in Acts three, where he, he heals a lame man. In the temple and then he quotes deuteronomy 18 and he says look moses said the lord will raise up from your own people a prophet like me so peter quotes deuteronomy 18 and likens jesus to a prophet like him but he and himself is making himself also a prophet like moses the signs and wonders of jesus and his apostles in acts are analogous to the signs of moses in deuteronomy 34 Again, signs and wonders are good, so the Gospels are not embarrassed by signs and wonders, they're not explaining them away, but you have to pay attention to how signs and wonders get used in the Gospels, and they're never there as knockdown proof of Jesus's divinity. More often than not, when a sign and wonder happens, it usually acts as a point when people are offended by Jesus, or it acts as a line in the sand and you have to make a choice. Are you going to follow Jesus or are you not? And in this way, the signs and wonders often function as warnings. If you look at Acts 3, which is quoting Deuteronomy 18, everyone who does not listen to that prophet will be utterly rooted out of the people. The the words of God are spoken into situations or the, the, the manifest truth of god which might be a sign and a wonder it might be a word of god in the gospels are used as dividing lines or a way to root people out it's not a way of utterly overwhelming people with shock and awe and forcing them to believe it's actually a way of shining a light on what's going on so that people can see clearly and then where the line is drawn and decide what side of the line they want to be on. And this is the way that Moses's signs. If you remember in front of Pharaoh worked that Pharaoh sees all the signs and wonders and he hardens his heart. He chooses to be offended in act seven before his martyrdom, Stephen uh, explicitly refers to Moses and the word that another prophet like him would be raised up. And Moses is a sign of offense to people like I've been saying. So the egyptians opposed moses by force they didn't believe him uh, also the israelites moses's own people they grumble they're always grumbling and rejecting him and this is the way that jesus is being presented as being like moses in luke his suffering was a necessary part of his prophetic identity when you speak god's truth into situations those situations don't want to hear it they fight back so the suffering servant or the suffering prophet is a part of Jesus's identity, which then becomes what happens to the disciples in Acts. So the church in Acts becomes a prophet like Moses speaks God's word into situations and then people grumble, reject or conspire to kill. Which leads quite happily or handily to the third Christological point I made, which is that Jesus is presented in Luke as a righteous martyr or an innocent martyr. So more than any other gospel writer, Luke stresses the innocence of Jesus. For example, Pilate declares three times that Jesus has done nothing to deserve death. And then the centurion at the foot of the cross in Luke 23, he praises God, he looks up and he says, surely this man was innocent da chaos which again is an interesting contrast this story gets told in the gospel of mark where the centurion looks up and says surely this man was the son of god which is a kingly title to do with being caesar for example caesar had son of god written over stamped on all his coins and mark has the centurion look up at jesus on the cross and say surely this man was you know, saviour of the world, emperor of all. Because Mark has a different theology. He's got a different point he's making. And Luke says, surely this man was innocent. Jesus is the innocent one. The dichaos is a link back to Isaiah 53, where the Messiah is the innocent one or the righteous one. So in Acts, the image of Jesus as the innocent sufferer is reinforced in Peter's sermon. So Acts 3 here, look at Acts 3, 14 to 15, where Peter reproaches Jerusalem. You rejected the holy and righteous one, and you asked to have a murderer given to you instead, and you killed the author of life. You chose the convicted one over the innocent one. In Acts 7, again, you get uh, the climax of Stephen's speech. He accuses the people of killing the righteous, the innocent one. So this is Acts 7, 51-52. You stiff-necked people, you are forever opposing the Holy Spirit, just as your ancestors used to do. They killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, and now you have become his murderers. The Hebrew scriptures foretell it, Jesus fulfills it, and now the Acts church continues the story. And like Moses, a true prophet will be opposed by the people that he comes to. This is how you can tell that the prophet is like Moses he'll be innocent and he'll be opposed like the righteous one he'll be innocent of the charges but they will kill him anyway and Luke spends a lot of time showing us how incapable Rome and Jerusalem were of offering justice Stephen's martyrdom becomes the pattern for believers continuing the story so here it's worth noting how important it was for the early church to see The martyr's death of Stephen, of Jesus, um, of themselves who were under persecution, to see the martyr's death as confirmation of their innocence, not as proof of failure. So they're not seeing what we would call now the, the prosperity gospel or the idea that if you follow Jesus, then you will be brought into prosperity. This is not the view of the early church. They see that the the persecution and the death is not evidence that something's gone wrong, it's evidence that something's gone right. That the world will kill you. They will kill the innocent one. So rather than seeing the cross or other forms of execution as marks of shame, the early church in the book of Acts spends a lot of time actually showing that this is evidence of righteousness, of innocence. And it's in this way. That martyrdom becomes the defeat of death. It's in the being killed that you defeat death. That you defeat the sting of death, the power of death, and in the form of resurrection, death itself. That it's through submitting to these evils and persecutions, not through fighting them or killing them or dominating them like another bully, but instead by submitting to them, you take away their sting. They don't have the power over you that they think they're going to have. These are the three motifs then of the spirit servant, a prophet like Moses, and the innocent martyr. These are the motifs that have a programmatic element to them. They're going to shape the way that Luke portrays the disciples and the church in the book of Acts. Another good way to describe the sort of society and movement in Acts is to see the church as an alternative politics to the other groups around them. They're one group amongst many, and there's lots of different ways of organising yourself with your own values and ethics and responses to power. The church in Acts is no different. What you're seeing is that the movement in Acts is not a new religion, but a new politics, a new way of imagining what they're doing in the world and negotiating. There's a lot of negotiation of space between other forms of politics, other forms of identity, ethnic, tribal, religious, all those things. What you see in the book of Acts is a negotiation of these spaces for the new movement that's just coming in to play. In Luke 24, Jesus, so the, the gospel ends with Jesus telling his disciples that they have to wait until they have been clothed with power from on high. And then in Acts 1, everything that Jesus began to do and teach is transferred to the disciples. And he says in Acts 1, 8, You will receive power, and you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Jesus was anointed by the Spirit to bring good news to the poor, and then the poor are identified as more than just Hebrew nationals. So the church is anointed by the same Spirit to proclaim the gospel to all nations, to the ends of the earth. And this becomes set up as the main theme of the book of Acts. And when we're in the realm of nations, we're now in the realm of politics. So it's noteworthy that the mission of Luke-Acts is the same. It hasn't changed. Jesus's mission in the gospel is the same as the church's mission in Acts. Like Jesus, the disciple church proclaims repentance and forgiveness and liberation from bondage. Like Jesus, the disciple church does signs and wonders, which are both acts of mercy and occasions for offense. Like Jesus, the disciples teach with authority. Like Jesus, the disciples are innocent, but they suffer anyway. Like Jesus, the disciples are arrested in Jerusalem They are examples of Luke 14, where Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. We're going to be looking at all of this and more in the sessions to come. I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Welcome back, friends. It's been a while since we've had a debrief episode, and I've missed it. We've had lots of interviews and chats, but we haven't had the debrief, where I sit down with my friends, Chris Marchand and Natasha Beckles, who have listened to my droning on and on about the Book of Acts, and we are going to have a little conversation about this. And uh, this is part of what we do here on the Tenth Theology Podcast, is try and involve teaching... with conversation. So I'm really glad to welcome my friends back to the tent. Uh, welcome, Natasha, welcome, Chris. You, you can't nod, you have to say, you have to say something. This is, a, this is a, an audio format. I'm gonna,
1: gonna <laughs> pantomime it, <laughs> pantomime <laughs> <No>, it. <laughs>
2: good to see you all.
0: It's been such a long time. Why don't we just quickly get, uh, Chris, tell us where, you, where you're calling in from and what your work is. And Natasha, then you're gonna do the same.
1: Yeah. So I'm calling in from Peoria, Illinois. Uh, It's in between Chicago and St. Louis. We're not not a suburb of Chicago. (laughs) There's a lot of cornfields in between us and them. And uh, I do church ministry and uh, an Anglican minister, you know, also a, a writer. And I happen to be a podcaster as well, as uh, most people probably know by now. I do music and, and, and all those types of things. But I, I teach online courses as well, and which it was something that happened kind of in the midst of the pandemic, where I got a job where I can teach kids online, which was great.
0: Wow. You're just whipping those hats on and off. You're wearing a lot of different hats. Well, I'm glad that we, I'm glad you're wearing your Tent Theology podcast hat today. And Maybe. Natasha, where, yeah. where are you calling in from? Remind us what you do and where you are.
2: I'm based, I live in London, born and raised, um, I am a curate um, in a church in Camden area um, in Kentish Town and I am, uh, what can I say, I, I have my stipend or my, court, my license to work in that particular situation is about looking at young people um, what the church can be doing to support young people more and then particularly around serious youth violence and um, thinking about how um, we strategically plan well to to intervene interrupt um, that p- particular principality that's imp- impacting some of our young people of all backgrounds in the city and elsewhere so that's, that's what I do.
0: That's great and I would remind listeners to find out more about Natasha from a previous episode where I sat down and We talked at length about these things. So it's really nice to have you here, friends. Now, we are talking about the book of Acts today. Yeah, I I am curious, where does Acts, Natasha, where does Acts loom on your mental horizon? What, What kind of place has Acts played in your life up until now?
2: Well, we, we describe it as Acts um, Luke Acts as well, because they, these kind of um, this two volume piece and it's it's probably my second favorite gospel. My first being John. I came to faith on John. I can remember doing some um, early kind of theology stuff, teaching stuff and being sent off to study a little bit more about this, this man. And, it's you know, it's such an amazing um, Luke's heart is so full the least, you know, those people who are in the most marginalized situations, so vulnerable and he's bringing them into the center. So I love him for that. And, you know, you've got Mary's story, you know, the the women, there's so many different voices that are in there. uh, So I love it from that point of view. And then Acts is just, you know, blistering in that, in, in, you know, it, it has more references to the Holy Spirit than any other book in the bible you know if you do a kind of google search and it's just a little search not even a google one just a a word search and it's just just exciting. (laughs) yeah just exciting and you know just that sense of teaching you that what it's like when you know the spirit is just ahead of you and your job is just to chase it it's such a beautiful piece love it
0: chris what about you where where where's your first impressions of acts come from
1: I think I grew up Pentecostal, and so uh, there's that whole first section, okay. which is kind of a big deal to Pentecostal people, and uh, it's always been impactful on my life. I think what I'm fascinated with in the Book of Acts is I, I've never felt like I've gone deep enough. Like, like there's 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 parts as we get into the story, right. And you, you know, where we have this council of Jerusalem and there's this conflict between Peter and Paul and, and then the, all the different routes that Paul takes. And even towards the end of the book where Paul, you know, he's in prison and all these things, there's parts of it where I felt like I've I've never gone quite far enough. And so I've always wanted to know more about it. I think what's interesting about acts for me is once we get past these opening scenes of the Holy spirit moving, you know, God's power, you know, the, 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 the dynamos, the dynamos that you talk about, but then the problems arise. Yeah. Right. (laughs) You know, like, like then the things start to happen where people like, uh Oh, Uh, it's not going to be as this easy as we thought it would be because, because we're, we're human. We're us. Um, So, you know, I've, I've always wanted to wrestle and grapple with that more because what happens is, is people have a tendency to want to teach principles out of acts Like, like, well, this is what happened. So therefore this is what we should do prescriptive in that sense. And it's never quite that simple. Uh, I I don't know. So I'm curious where you take things in, in your future episodes about uh, regarding those types of issues.
0: It is funny, isn't it? I mean, the uh, Pentecostals of which, you know, I'm part of that world too. And yeah, we read Acts 1 and 2 and then sort of stop. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, exactly. It's right. like 30 That's chapters right. in Acts, but they stop at 2 and, th- and then they say, oh, we're an axe church. You're like, really? We're oh, an axe we... church, yeah.
1: Have you, Natasha, <laughs> exactly. exactly. was that the
0: kind of, were you, were you did you grow up in churches or were you part of churches that said we're an axe church? Did you, Was that a phrase that you would heard before? Or?
2: No, I, I was homeschooled in Jesus by a okay. So, <laughs> which means that you know that all of those kind of you know parables were taught as part of the wisdom of the household in that sense but I can remember coming to faith and you know all of those jail scenes you know when you know yeah. at once <laughs> and they were worshiping God and they, you know the jail broke open and yeah. that gets played a lot in Pentecostal scenarios as well totally
1: I, yeah. I can re- I resonate with that <laughs> Yeah,
0: I'm just thinking now. What are some of the other uh, cliché? What are some of the stories? Obviously, got the speaking in tongues. What we, other stories? And then you got Peter being released. What else? What else do we know from Acts?
2: Paul and Silas. Paul, Paul and Silas break, breaking out.
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah.
1: Well, did, don't we get some glimmers of snake handling in Acts?
2: Don't we get we some do, of that? Yeah,
0: when Paul is moving uh, some some driftwood and yeah,
2: and then there's the the lady the lady who is you know calling them out because she's got that spirit in her okay that's a good one that that comes around from time to time because and the, and the handkerchiefs let's not forget the handkerchiefs <laughs> not yeah right <laughs> the handkerchiefs yes <laughs> so, so i think i agree with you they there's a lot of principles that are just brought out from those stories yeah
0: have either of you ever come across anybody talking about acts in terms of all of the speeches that they're always making uh, yes. to governors and Religious leaders and, or the conflict resolution aspects of Acts, where it's all crunchy group dynamics. Has anybody ever talked about that stuff? It's
1: it's rarely talked about. I think. Yeah, Yeah. there's a lot of long speeches, isn't there? Aren't there? I mean, there's that's there, but it's not talked about, right?
2: Because it's all kind of all of these apologetics and all of these explanations of what the faith is. It's it's quite an interesting one. Do you think we should have an Acts church again? Would you want one? I'll be honest. I've I've been busy um, planting a mission kind of food bank for young people. Okay. And let me tell you to see how the Holy Spirit is ahead of you (laughs) and you're running. I'm like having an axe experience just doing all of that stuff. So I just feel like it's open to us. It's whether you step into it. And it really should be part of every church's life. You must have something in which you're getting some high octane runabout excitement going on
0: you can't just drop that brick and then run away you got to tell us more, more what you mean so you you're saying the holy spirit is running ahead of you as you're starting this food bank for young people
2: yeah yeah you we're looking at well cuz it, it it's it's lots of things just even um there's a discernment process as to why you go to a particular um church and listening to the story of that knowing what my kind of particular experience I was in Broadwater Farm for a period of time you know and what I've been exposed to and it's amazing how God prepares you and then puts you in a situation and then all of these parts start to fall together but we've now come up with a very niche um, version and we're hoping that will be shared in our particular diocese area so it's quite exciting actually really looking forward to those kind of things so i have been busy doing like graphic designs and getting young people involved to to really articulate what they think should be in the bag to help young people and, you know, just, just how the connections have just worked together. And when a door closes, you just accept it and another one opens. It's beautiful.
0: Right. You, you don't panic when your plans don't work out because you're thinking, you know what? This is probably going to be redeemed. Something good is happening right now. I'm going to... It's that idea, isn't it? Like you go where the green shoots are, right? You're like, well, where are the green shoots right now? And that is a real axe type type of activity isn't it
2: just can you keep up just keep yeah
0: up. a lot of it a lot of uh ducking and diving and adaptation on the moment right
2: yeah yeah it's fun it's fun though. love it love it love it i think i recommend it everybody do it do it <laughs> well
0: also let's not forget that i mean one of the very first things the axe church did is they started organizing themselves to give food away amen so if natasha is building a food bank that is an axe church type activity right also though i hate to break it to you natasha the first person to die for being a christian was the guy in charge of the food bank
2: ready on that <laughs>
0: <Just, laughs> we'll, we'll get to him in a bit but stephen was the first martyr and he was the guy in charge of giving food away to people so that that's it's no offensive. accident
2: there. yeah it's it wasn't offensive. all of this stuff is offensive too. he wasn't the yeah, clever yeah.
0: teacher he was the food guy giving money, giving food away to people and that that put him at the forefront of some problems, so. It does, it
2: does, it definitely does. But it's exciting too, and what a way to go.
1: <laughs> I, I, so here, here's my, I feel conflicted about your question, you know, should we have an Acts church today? And I, and I, 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 I think my basic answer is, yeah, sure. Um, growing up Pentecostal, there was always talks of, of a call to revival. Can we have another revival? Can we get back to that? And so I carry that. I carry some of the anticipation, but also some of the guilt of revival. (laughs) And um, I think, I think what I see there is the beauty of it is go back, go back to Jerusalem and wait and allow God to bring the revival. And so I grew up with a lot of trying to manufacture revivals and I'm not, I'm no longer in that world necessarily, but I've been doing a church plant and it feels like I've been spending 10 years of trying to build it with my own hands. Like everything is on me and my shoulders, uh, that pressure, that pressure, that pastors feel to keep everything going. So I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm drawn to a little bit more of that. I I need God to do the movement. Like I can't, I can't do this on my own is, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling, I've been f- feeling pretty powerless of late. Um, so it's not that I want to manufacture a revival. No. It's that maybe I'm struggling with the, just wait, allow God to move aspect of it. It's, it's been tough. You know, the, 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 the journey of ministry is pretty daunting at times. Right. So that's, that's my answer to should, there, should we be an acts church? Yeah. It's that conflicted feeling that I get.
0: You know, it would be interesting to find out how full-time ministers they were in Acts. It doesn't, we know that they had day jobs. We do know that, right? So it would be interesting to see how much the Acts church was being led by people whose sole income and livelihood was to be a professional church person or how much it was them just being swept along in something and and it taking over their life. So I don't know. We'll have to look into that. What did you think? What, what, what other kind of ideas or impressions popped up when you started to think about the Book of Acts?
2: The, a lot of social justice stuff, a lot of, um, as you say, you know, the feeding of the widows and all the drama that comes out of that. And as you say, the kind of social, how they work out, the problem solving, and that is so early church. It's just people, from those people in there, those scenarios going on and um, working out how to problem solve those as it is before the paint dries is great
0: i mean natasha you brought up the the connection to luke acts and how really that you should just be saying that in one in one breath right and how acts is just a continuation of the stuff that jesus is saying when he says i'm going to bring good news to the poor right he unrolls the scroll and he says today this is being fulfilled in your hearing and then that's the book of acts in lots of ways isn't it like it's a continuation of that
2: Well, I find that there's so many um, people in church who are moved by that, you know, that manifesto piece that Jesus made. And and if the Holy Spirit's not leading that, then then you don't want to see it. You can have people that are like running around doing whatever name they want to call it, philanthropy or social transformation or whatever. And it actually is about massaging your ego. Whereas there's a, there's something about acts that People are close to these situations. They're learning as much as what's going on. They trust God in the moment and say whatever it is that they do, or give out, you know, or or, or move from what they have seen and learnt in Luke, and then something new happens, and that is just so exciting. So you know, the the, the whole, they're not expecting. I don't know if what if they've got any expectation. You know, when you're seeing. Paul and Peter, and they're wandering around talking to various people and having to deal with these situations, they're, do they have an expectation that just because Jesus did this, this is what's going to happen? Or are they just walking on, you know, I, this is what we believe, this is what we're prepared to, to talk about, and then just be surprised by whatever the spirit wants to do in front of them at that point. And that's great.
0: Well, it makes me wonder, because if, if Luke really wants you to sort of think of the disciples as like another they're following in jesus's footsteps right they're they're acting a bit like jesus acted it makes me wonder whether jesus himself was being spontaneous and didn't know what was going to happen
2: i think that's part of being human
0: right if paul and silas are walking around going we have no idea what's about to happen but let's do this anyway i wonder whether that also is the character of jesus who is improvising on the spot you know and 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 that's also part of being christ-like is acting out of goodness i
2: I think so because it's it's because you know there's things that jesus doesn't have an answer for and he doesn't know so there is there is the the particularity of being a human being in this situation and that's what he's modeling to us i think that that is there's some
0: yeah and if if freedom is real if you're acting in a place where freedom is real then then that does mean you don't actually know the future people's reactions to you are free choices and that Jesus is doing his thing. He's not like this mastermind who's controlling everybody. He's, he's an actor in a world of other actors.
2: And, and I think that's the whole thing about the kenosis piece, isn't it? That you're, That's what you're giving away, that the, the ability to have that omnipresence, omnipresence, all of that knowledge, that's what you give up being human.
1: Maybe, maybe what I'm interested in uh, regarding this is the tension between movements and organizations because you talk about the spontaneous aspect of Jesus, but then like you see in Acts, it's like, well, they start to organize. And so uh, I think people are tempted on both sides of that. They're thinking, Mm -hmm. no, it's about the dynamic move of the spirit. And then you get other people that are like, we have to have order. Let's, I I don't know. Do you have Robert's rules? Uh, Do you know what that is? Like when you have a board meeting? And no. in, in, in America, when like a board comes together, even a church board or a school board, there's Robert's rules. I don't even know who Robert was, but it's like all of this protocol for
0: you, you like literally wrote the book. Yeah,
1: he wrote the book.
0: <laughs> he wrote the book on protocol. Yeah,
1: it's yeah. Yeah. Whatever he did. you like, you know, there has to be a quorum and there's a way to vote and there's a way to present different addendums to, you know, to the to the to the list and all that.
0: Come Lord, those Jesus. can be really
1: soul killing. <laughs> Yes, 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 yes. They're very soul-killing. At the same time, like you see the church doing that, right? And so I think maybe what I'd be interested in 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 studying Acts is where is that convergence of, you know what, we do have to have some order, but may God help us if we forget that we have to be spontaneous and be led by the Spirit. And so I think I'm interested in how those both like fit together.
2: I think think those things do turn up because you, I don't think it's possible to say that you are pastoring a community and you don't care for them, you know, and there comes a point where you have to put some systems and structures in for their benefit. So it's not, so it can't be because you are an administrate, you know, kind of junkie and you just like to bureaucratize everything that moves. It's got to be that it's, uh, it well serves the purpose of the church and this kind of balance between the two so that you have the balance of the, um spontaneous but equally you have the systems because we're human and we need the seasons we need the repetition we need all of those things just to give you structure otherwise you feel quite anxious and and that kills the spirit too because you're completely overwhelmed there's nothing that that is safe or predictable we need we we need a balance between the two otherwise you could or you can do periods where they like we've just been through where there's complete you know a lack of certainty going on but you need to have had some sort of structure and order previous to 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 move into a kind of anaerobic period where there's less order if that makes sense
0: i think that there's something here about that the kinds of stuffy uh what did you say natasha like people who are addicted to to admin
2: or admin addicts (laughs) or
0: chris talked about there are types of people who really just love the rules And they love the addendums and the paragraph two, clause C kind of people. But you have to look at the, where did all the uh, admin go in the early church? It was all towards, it wasn't towards keeping itself going. It wasn't self-referential bureaucracy. It was, we have, it was like, oh shit, we have forgotten to feed Greek widows. We need to do some admin to make sure this works now. Or there's all these Gentiles showing up. We need to do some admin and figure out how what rules are going to be applicable to them. Or there's a, there's a famine. We need some admin to make sure that these churches in these other cities get fed, right? Like all of the admin and organization, which is absolutely there, was not a self-referential thing where they were just sort of playing the game of admin in order to keep the institution going. It was always to do with a group of people somewhere that needed attention, right?
2: So it's about need and not power.
0: It looks like that. Yeah, so admin can be, bureaucracy can be a a mark of kenosis. It can be a way to organize your power to, to give it away to other people. Chris?
1: Yeah, I have, I have a really prevalent example of that. Um, in the Anglican Church here in America, there's been this relatively huge scandal where there was sexual abuse at the hands of a lay minister. And what's happened is is, over time it's become apparent that all the way up the line proper protocol was not put in place mm. about how to like that, that that the church leaders and then the diocesan leaders you know the bishop up, all the way up to the bishop in this uh, sexual abuse scandal uh that they just i wouldn't say they they whimmed it you know they just winged it they they they, they they did try to go through it, but there was nothing set in place where they was like if this happens, this is what you do. Right. Yeah, right. and the the only reason to have true protocol is to protect these poor children and other Absolutely. and there was an adult w- women involved in it as well. It's to protect them, and instead, these people, uh, the parents of this young girl that was abused, and there have been others, they're, they they've been left out to dry, mm. they, and and even been rejected by their former churchgoers, you know, mm. and it's all because. The system was just not in place. And also it was set up to protect those that were already in yeah. power rather than oh, those that have been abused. That's what
0: you find is when the system is being used it's to protect, it's usually to protect the abusers. Um, yeah. And you, we do see that a lot and that's where it becomes demonic. I think.
2: 100%. It sounded really positive that we're talking about but it's important stuff and i i think that's really valuable because here in the uk we've just we've recently had nixus and it it, there's a lack of process and just collusions and this that and the other and trying to just trust people because you know them when actually sometimes you you know i my allegiance is with christ and he loves these people and that's what's going to happen priority one
0: this sounds like a good place to stop friend (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> why don't we wind down this particular conversation but we're gonna we got more acts to go so why don't we meet again uh go the next one is going to be acts one and we're going to talk about that so let's talk about Act one in our next conversation but until then go well i'll see you soon
2: to further support the show please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media and learn more about Tenth Theology at www.tentheology.com Thank you for joining us and God bless everyone.